Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 28th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is rewiring your brain to escape stress and anxiety. With me is Dr. Christoph Morin, the author of The Serenity Code, How Brain Plasticity Helps You Live Without Stress, Anxiety, and Depression. The publisher is Depth Insights. Christoph is passionate about decoding the relationship between the brain and human behaviors. He's received multiple speaking, publishing, and research awards during his career. He holds an MBA from BGSU and both an MA and a PhD in media psychology from Fielding Graduate University. Christoph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So let's just start out. This is a, a book you put out here in the midst of COVID-19. There's plenty of stress going around. Can you tell us a bit about the you know, purpose of the book, why you wrote it now, uh, what you're trying to accomplish here? Absolutely. Uh, while it may appear that I wrote this because of COVID, uh, the inspiration for the book really started uh, almost uh, two years ago as I was personally uh, looking at uh, solutions for a pretty high level of anxiety and discovered that neuroscience could, uh, in fact, offer some amazing options that often are either poorly understood or not documented well enough in a particular book. Okay. And you you mentioned uh, early on in the book that one of the things you're talking about is trying to break the cycle of what you call abandoning yourself. That's pretty provocative. What what does it mean, first of all, to say that we are abandoning ourselves? What do you mean by that statement? I think when we feel that level of stress, anxiety, and and possible uh, depressive moods, it's easy for us to... um, play the victim card and in a way uh, continue to look for quick options that involve you know possibly medication uh, and other forms of intervention that do not require as much work on yourself and and so this idea of abandoning yourself is that we have to take responsibility as i see it in our capacity to in fact face mediate and possibly free ourselves from uh, the most negative impact of the stress and anxiety. And and therefore, this idea of uh, abandonment is one that I want to address in the book by showing that brain plasticity and simple habits can um, respond very quickly and very naturally to the most negative symptoms. Okay, so you're really activating yourself to try to make the situation, make how you feel, how you're dealing with the world better. 
Exactly. And, and I, you know, I can go with an oversimplified metaphor, but there are some buttons really located in different parts of the brain that can uh, rebalance, particularly the production of specific uh, uh, neurotransmitters, you know, those chemicals that go from neurons to uh, neurons and are uh, directly implicated in uh, some of the responses of stress and anxiety. Well, let's, let's actually stay with those. I mean, that was going to be a question later on, but uh, let's seize on it right now. Um, talk about some of those specific neurotransmitters. I think they're really important, but I think that too often, other than talking about uh, you know, hormonal imbalances and so forth, we don't get around to discussing them in the way we, we could and should. Yes, and, and that conversation often is poorly understood because the uh, role of specific neurotransmitters is, is always uh, not questioned for debate, but at least uh, uh, a confusion uh, can arise because of the multiple roles that uh, neurotransmitters have. But one which is implicated in many of those uh, negative responses uh, for both stress and anxiety and depression is serotonin. And serotonin is indeed implicated in our ability to regulate our moods. And what we forget is serotonin is uh, naturally produced in, in many uh, situations where we can, um, you know, in a way fight back chemically uh, uh, again, uh, uh, against a lower or depressed level of serotonin. And therefore, neurotransmitters, another one being dopamine, are these sort of natural medicines that are produced in our brain for which we need to understand better what can be done to restore that natural flow. And what specifically can we do? Because this is very exciting. This is suggesting without trying to put down the uh, pharmaceutical solutions that there is a way that, as you just said, naturally we can, we can take the battle forward. Yes. Yeah, so um, let, let's start with dopamine because in our model, in, in my theory of how we can fight both uh, stress and anxiety, and I do talk about uh, depression because it's often a byproduct of those two, um, I pinpoint specifically the power of self-love which is an attitude and, and often poorly understood where you can direct more appreciation, more compassion for yourself. Well, it turns out that love, and, and I know as an expert of emotion, you uh, have uh, uh, much to say about that, but love is indeed a powerful emotion. And when we love others as much as we love ourselves, we actually release more dopamine and neuroepinephrine. And these two, especially dopamine, are the fuel of our motivation. And what I argue in the book is it's impossible to really fight stress and anxiety unless you can almost redirect that love to yourself so that you benefit from the fuel of natural motivation so that you basically inject more dopamine to motivate yourself to not abandon yourself. Okay, so the, the love of yourself, it sounds to me paradoxically, comes through also loving others connecting, reaching out, not dropping out, which depression quite honestly can make us do sometimes. Is, is that true? But there's probably some other nuances there that I've missed. No, absolutely. And, and many philosophers have argued that it, you can't even love others uh, you know, to the full potential unless you love yourself. So you're absolutely right. This is, there's a, a dynamic relationship between the two. And, and often when you get into you know, the extent to which people 
um, get depressed and, and often you know, beat themselves up. Um, these double uh, bang uh, aspect uh, of depression continue to make it worse. So this move of not narcissism, so it's really important to understand that self-love is not narcissism, but this move of, of, of not being as harsh on yourself, of putting yourself with self-care, self-kindness, self-compassion at the center of a process that in a way frees up so much energy because you're focusing on appreciation instead of judgment. Okay, well, it seems to me we have two or three emotions at least here that are kind of in play here. We talked about love, we talked about you know, self-appreciation, we talked about not being too harsh on oneself. Uh, we've mentioned depression, which often brings up the specter of sadness. Are there emotions that you would say are central to productive self-love and those that are maybe on the other side of the ledger? Boy, that's a that's a tricky question uh, because, of course, uh, I would argue that the whole idea of the book is to um, create a condition emotionally and cognitively, but also spiritually, where we can experience what I call serenity, which is why the book is called the Serenity Code. And 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 I would uh, argue, and I have been able to measure through uh, a piece of research, that once we reach serenity, we reach joy we reach the possibility of you know experiencing calm and composure so so there are you know byproducts uh, additional emotions that seem to be activated and and nurtured uh, by the time you're able to cut off that uh, you know that anxiety and depression okay well i certainly would have thought of happiness and you mentioned joy because happiness is an approach emotion we talked just about yep. go about joining, meeting up with other people. So you love them, you love yourself. Um, and when you mention the word harsh, then on the other hand, I said, well, the other approach emotion, or the most obvious one is anger. And it sounds like being angry with yourself is not quite compatible with appreciating yourself and giving yourself a break so you can get to serenity. Is that... Makes that's exactly sense. yes. That's exactly right. And um, in the book, I made the maybe ambitious um, goal, uh, hopefully successful, of explaining to uh, readers the brain systems that are responsible for these negative responses of anger or or harsh judgment, and and how do you, in a way, take back the control of certain brain systems, particularly primal brain systems which have been in place for millions of years and the purpose of which is indeed to defend us and to address risks and threats as quickly as, as they can be. But those systems, as you know, continue to be in a way dominant even today when we don't have to you know, uh, worry about being eaten by a lion. We continue to be poked and stimulated in a negative way by news and by all aspects of life, particularly in the COVID situation. And those um, uh, threats are processed by the primal brain as if, you know, our life was going to end in that same day. So we are in a way uh, uh, in a need to wake up to the critical importance of those primal brain system, to give them the space that they need to respond and protect us, but to temper, in a way, control their dominance in the fact that they hijack our entire body and our entire mind uh, in ways that, that compromise our health. Yeah, and yet because they are subconscious, we can't you know, avoid the hijacking entirely. We have to massage it. We have to find ways around it. 
So I, I'm going to come back to that. I, I want to go back to one thing that's really just central to the title of the book, because you, you use the acronym SAD, again, for stress, anxiety, and depression. And you just mentioned a bit ago that depression can often be triggered by or deepened by at least the stress and anxiety. Is stress really often the, the arrow tip that creates this this difficulty that one struggles with, or does the anxiety bring on the stress? I mean, what's the interaction between these three? When I guess that I'm really that interaction, about. as you can imagine, has been studied by all kinds of scholars. And um, at least in my own research, I established a somewhat stronger correlation between anxiety and depression rather okay. than stress and depression. And it's possibly because... The, the best definition or the simplest definition of stress is really feeling that we cannot and we don't have the resources to address a particular task. And it can be, you know, a threatening task, but it can be also a positive task. So this, this notion of stress and, and the release of specific uh, neurochemicals that, that uh, you know, pump more uh, blood in our system and make us really ready to fight – um, those responses are, are necessary. We need a certain level of stress. Where things get uh, obviously out of control is, is where we put too much and, and basically everything crumbles. But, but in a way, the response to stress is not as uh, pathological as anxiety. Anxiety is the formation of predictions which, which are not necessarily supported by, by evidence. So we, we fabricate, we ruminate, we have these, you know, this dread or worries that constantly drain on our energy and seems to darken every single piece of information that comes through our mind. And that, that, that duration, the, the duration of that, you know, of that excessive anxiety can obviously lead to depressive moods. You know, depression is measured typically over a certain amount of time during which you have lost, uh, you know, your sleep, your, your joy of, of experiencing every single day. So, so to me, the biggest uh, problem out of the three in many ways is anxiety. And, and poorly understood as it is, anxiety is becoming better research. There's, there is better medication. Let's be clear. My book is not to deny people access to medication, yeah. but to give them a better understanding of options. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because anxiety is an emotion that you feel like you're not in control of your circumstances. And one of the causes of sadness and profound sadness, i.e. depression, can be a sense of hopelessness. So if you feel like you do not control certain aspects of your life, that you're in a, in a defensive crouch and, it, and the duration, as you just mentioned, is exceedingly long, uh, that can really take one down. Let's switch over. We're almost halfway through the interview, and it, this really is a book dedicated to offering concrete, practical solutions, which I think is part of its admirable value here. You're mentioning seven habits. I think the first thing we should do is let you kind of give us a top line of what these seven habits are, and then I have some follow-up questions. Yeah. So the book presents really three steps. The first step we've partially talked about is people need to educate themselves to the importance of those brain systems. And how can you, uh, through certain techniques, um, mitigate, you know, and rebalance the effect of, of certain system. The second step is um, to have an understanding of how that self-compassion, self-love can automatically give you, you know, more motivation, more strength, more resilience to transform yourself. And the third is specific habits, which I discovered and, and documented scientifically, are typically well-known 
uh, and used by people without necessarily understanding the science. And these habits have been now clearly documented to produce and restore the missing neurotransmitters. And so those seven habits represent strategies that can naturally heal on a daily basis. Um, those are, and I'll, um, I'll describe them in terms of their role, connecting with nature, connecting with pets, and connecting with our breath. Uh, those three have the real power to control and quiet our primal brain. Uh, how so? Well, a walk in a beautiful park or outside is known to clear our mind, right? Well, by clearing our mind, we, in fact, restore more cognitive control. And by clearing more cognitive control, we have the ability to reappraise or reassess some of the threats that seem to uh, be uh, overblown in a way. So by having the clarity of our mind restored through a walk to nature, you can in fact improve what's called your vagal tone, which is basically your, your natural ability to fight back some of those negative responses. You can also increase GABA, and GABA is a very important neurotransmitter. You can uh, you know, buy and consume supplements that have GABA, and it's supposed to quiet our nervous system. Uh, and so again, through a walk in nature, you can do that. Do you have questions on that or can I move to connecting with pets? You can move on to pets. Quite right. <laughs> so pets, uh, I don't know if you have a cat or a dog, but we don't realize the power and the extent to which these uh, companions can heal us. And, and real beautiful research now has shown that in the presence of pets, uh, our blood pressure is, is lowered typically. We can enjoy the present. So there is in fact, real opportunity to be with our animals and understand the present as much as we need to to quiet our nervous system. Too much of our mind, as you know, is either uh, ruminating the past or worrying about the future. Uh, we, in fact, can release more oxytocin when we're in the presence of pets. And oxytocin, of course, is both a hormone and neurotransmitter. The difference is hormone travel in the bloodstream and neurotransmitters uh, you know, travel in the brain. But both of those substances um, in whatever form we get can make us appreciate uh, more uh, joy and happiness because of the presence and connections to others. We, of course, can generate oxytocin in the presence of people, not just pets. Uh, but it's a powerful, um, you know, medicine to uh, both stress and anxiety. And, and breath is, of course, central to many practices, whether it's yoga, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, some form of breath work and meditation and such. But we have incredible access to using our breath to stop negative thoughts, to decrease the activity of the amygdala, which is that megaphone in the primal part of the brain that seems to amplify threats. We can increase alpha waves using breath, which is a state of mind where we have more calm and, and more appreciation for the moment. And, and again, you can improve your vagal tone. So in, in my documentation of those three, I show that if we practice this every day, we can basically create a big difference in the way we feel. Now, those three, um, are they stronger, more important than the next four? Um, what's the relationship? It's, it's in my model uh, a, a, a function of which of those brain systems they tend to uh, act upon the most. So uh, the first okay. three really are quieting that primal brain, that survival-centric brain, which is made of the, the uh, brain stem and the limbic system. The second three... Uh, I, I call more um, 
in a way, pleasurable and more, um, uh, you know, activating the rational brain uh, because, because there are multiple ways in which these practices can affect our brain. Connecting with laughter is one. Um, connecting music is the other. And the third is connecting with stories. As you can see, these functions, again, have been documented. But laughter, uh, lots of research has demonstrated, can uh, release more endorphins. And endorphins are directly related to the possibility of cutting off some pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain. Uh, and, 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 and we can recycle our ability to laugh. As you know, there is this field of study called embodied cognition, which has demonstrated that if we smile, if our face are actually moving in the direction of positive valence, positive emotions, our brain tends to recycle that information as evidence that we're happy. So this is a really fascinating aspect of how we can uh, augment our joy and our serenity. Of course, music has been also documented uh, for a long time. And we have the choice in our uh, pick and choose of music to control emotionally how we can feel. And, and therefore, the effect of music has been documented to raise oxytocin, to lower cortisol levels, to improve our you know, immune system. There's been research in hospitals, especially, where the presence of music during surgery or when people are in pain uh, will have a direct effect on the level of pain. And finally, connecting with stories is an opportunity, once again, to use uh, really powerful ways in our brain to mirror and, in a way, mimic, if not duplicate, certain emotions that we see. Uh, as you know, we have these neurons called mirror neurons, and they automatically tend to help us sample the emotions of others that we pick an interest in. And so through stories, whether it's reading a book or watching a movie, we have this ability of, in a way, pumping ourselves with all kinds of emotions that other characters are experiencing, whether it's the thrill uh, uh, or joy or, or achievement. We have the ability, in a way, to self-direct what kind of chemicals we want that story to bring to us. Okay, so in the most positive sense of it, we can we can think our feelings and get to more feelings and get to a, a cognitive appreciation kind of the world around us and, and make connections that way. The last one then is. So the last habit. one is the connection to the spirit. Now okay. I have to tell you that, you know, until I was in my fifties, I, I never really had much of an interest in either religions or spirituality. I would even describe myself probably as borderline atheist, but during my pursuit for other solutions to address my own anxiety, I took an interest in plant medicine and, uh, you know, ancient uh, substances that have been used, particularly in the Amazonian uh, tribes. And uh, upon uh, having a session using one of those uh, substances called ayahuasca, I really felt that I was able to connect and, and take a perception on myself and my place in the universe that I had never contemplated. And it felt so much um, joy and, and, and peace when I achieved that portal that I developed an interest in what spirituality is. And of course, I wanted a different way to access spirituality than taking some uh, you know, psychedelic substances. And I have since then found through prayers and meditation the possibility of really transcending to that portal, to that portal of, of more peace, of more understanding, of more compassion, not just for myself, but for, for, the, for the whole planet and the whole you know, universe. So it's, it's a really 
powerful, you know, chapter and, and personal chapter in the book. I do not know if everybody is going to understand or interpret spirituality the way I do. I don't make it a religious, uh, you know, affair at all. I make it again based on research on the brain, an option that I think we can all exercise to feel better. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that you started this book before COVID-19. You've just told us that the spiritual part is something that's really blossomed for you. Would you say, if you go back and you maybe if you're willing to divulge a little more autobiographically about what propelled you to write the book, besides the spiritual aspect, which sounds very strong here, are there, in your case, certain of these habits that you found you gravitate to beyond the spiritual that um, you just proved to be a, a good instrumental fit in your case? Yeah, so I, I have not only written this book, I have applied it uh, to myself and uh, along the way um, shared and encouraged my son who has Tourette syndrome and uh, I discussed in the book has been a strong inspiration for, in a way, looking at alternative ways to address especially anxiety. Tourette syndrome is a neurological disorder and uh, a huge part of the pathology of, of people with Tourette syndrome is, is excessive anxiety. And, and so what was really beautiful about the book is to see how it would gradually um, not just affect me, but, but also bring more serenity, more, less complicated treatment options, and ultimately more joy uh, and and uh, sense of future that I have been able to observe in my own son. Okay, so this book is in some sense a, a gift to your son or a gift to your relationship with your son. Is that possible? It is. It is as well as um, a gift. I hope for millions of people who do oh, uh, wake up, you know, every morning with a sense of dread and and hopefully recognize that there are other options, but uh, but uh, the right pill, the right psychiatrist. Sure. So I want to go to another point in the book. There's a fairly long passage or series of passages talking about personality traits and different models. So I have two questions here. The first one is, of all these personality traits that you've looked at or models, is there one or, or aspects of different ones that you really stand out for you? And my follow-on to that then is, if there are certain traits that really seem instrumental or interesting to you, do you think those traits might gravitate to certain of these habits? as to what might most bring serenity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Of course, um, in step one of my book, I, I encourage people to take a deeper dive to understand the self. And uh, rather than jump right into my own theory of the self based on brain systems, I wanted the readers to get a chance to look at how you know, extensive this conversation has been for hundreds, yep. if not thousands of years. So I do go over certain models, starting, you know, with Freud and Carl Jung and others. And then I do describe some of the personality testing that's happened. And a lot of it, as you know, Dan, has been commercially successful. I'm thinking of Myers-Briggs, for instance, or DISC, uh, without much, you know, scientific evidence. So it's really important for people to wake up to the importance of looking at assessments that have more credibility and, and more science put into it. And the only one, and this is not my opinion, I think this opinion of most uh, experts in social sciences, is the big five. And the big five yes. is five traits that are known to be mostly permanent uh, throughout uh, uh, of our lives. But more importantly, there's been research done in over 70 countries now on big five. So 
they uh, have demonstrated that the concept of those five traits uh, is, is borderless. And so these are predispositions. Uh, I call them coping mechanisms. They, they appear to be somewhat hardwired. Uh, for instance, the extroversion is, is one of the five. It is pretty clear that people tend to uh, be uh, naturally within just a few weeks after birth inclined to either work more towards the, you know, introversion, introspection or to seek their energy and enthusiasm from, from others. And, and those traits, however, I discovered, are not as permanent as we once believed. So what I wanted to do is not be stuck in the concept of measuring traits, which has been controversial and difficult, and recognize that above and beyond traits, we have entire brain systems. The primal brain has control over multiple traits. And therefore, maybe if we can look at in a way, impacting the brain system, then there is a you know almost reshuffling of some of those natural coping mechanisms. That's my argument. It's it's a big one, uh, but it's a fascinating aspect I think of uh, of the work that is uh, now available on on understanding ourselves. Yeah, no, I, I certainly gravitate as well to the big five factor and. Uh, you know, there are, there are lapses and uh, problems with the other ones. Of course, big five in terms of how we can measure it for ourselves as a cognitive exercise when it involves so many things that are more subliminal for us is, is difficult. But, you know, when I was reading through your book, I was thinking to myself, huh, that's interesting. If I'm really given to openness to experience, for instance, one of the big five traits, uh, laughter came to mind immediately as a connection uh, because laughter can be very expansive and putting together connections and you know, it's just, that's kind of the nature of laughter to me. Um, if someone's really conscientious, I was going, hmm, you know, is there a kind of music they're going to like most of their conscientious? I couldn't quite figure that one out. But um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts along that I, line. I love your suggestion. I wish we had talked about that before I finished the book. I, I do think that's a really powerful assumption that you're making. And that is a trait uh, can indeed probably make it possible and easier for people to accept the concept of a, of a habit. Uh, again, you know, I, I don't like to describe the book as self-help, but it is meant to really bring power, empower people to take more control over that situation. And by doing so, they, they need to wake up to the possibility of, of, of changing part of the self, not, not fundamentally be a different person, but activating different parts of yourself. As you know, in the book also, there is an assessment. And so uh, uh, the whole idea is to benchmark and score and really try to track in a way your progress over time. And I think that's part of the promise of the book. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's uh, definitely true. I, one last thing that I was going to say, for me, the agreeable person would certainly gravitate toward pets quite possibly. Mm. Uh, just one, one more thought there. So uh, what you just brought up is how I kind of want to close the interview because you are indeed a, a very adept and innovative researcher. And the book does have self-assessment models. It also has some appendix items with some interesting charts. And the book is rich with interesting statistics. Uh, maybe just take us home with uh, a few of these that really struck you in the journey, the course of putting this book together. Uh, maybe a, a few factoids, a few statistics. But, you know, cast in personal terms, human terms. Yeah, so uh, I, I wanted, of course, as a scientist to show that data could support my findings, my theories. So I 
completed a piece of research on uh, about 100 people worldwide and, and used the assessment to benchmark levels of anxiety, um, certain aspects of, of uh, personality using uh, the big five model, scoring the primal, you know, primal uh, dominance, scoring the rational dominance, and to some extent, the spiritual activation. And what I was able to find and, and share in the book is, is direct correlation between the, the best scores in, uh, in the self, in the self-love, and the use of those habits, um, and of course, the, the state of serenity. So there is, I think, good, solid evidence showing that if you do work on those three steps, you will see and improve your score of serenity. And, and I think that's the whole promise of the book which is to not just understand how to do it, but to measure it and feel confident that it will be sustained by regularity and adoption of those habits. You can't just do it as one intervention. It has to become um, more of a schedule and a commitment. Sure, and part of your life. So I want to thank you so much for both being on the show and for writing this book, which is I think so instrumental and so generous in trying to give people a, a path forward. And although you started before COVID-19, uh, that is the world we're in presently. And this book has tremendous relevance uh, for so many of us uh, in society. So thank you so much, for Christoph, for having been on the, on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Uh, just in closing for people, uh, this has been episode number 28 rewiring your brain to escape stress and anxiety. My guest, Christoph Morin, the book once again is called The Serenity Code. If you do have any follow-up questions for Christoph, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. You can find other podcasts in this series uh, at my website, www.sensorylogic.com. Uh, certainly reviews of the podcast are welcome. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Uh, this book covers so much, it was hard to settle on one, but I eventually chose this from William James, who said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm -hmm.